Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. The first letter was to who? Do you remember? See, this is why I'm repeating them every single Sunday. We're going the opposite way. All right, let's just back up here for a sec. There we go. All right, that's good. Thank you. To Ephesus. The first letter was to Ephesus. They had done what? They had lost their their first love. And they needed to repent. And they needed to return to a love-based service to Christ. And if they would not do that, then the Lord said that they would face removal from active ministry. The second letter was to who? Smyrna. That's right. And they were under persecution. But they had remained faithful. And Jesus encourages them to continue their faithfulness even unto death. The third letter was to the church of Pergamum. They were compromising pure scriptural doctrine. And they they needed to repent and they needed to remain true to God's word. Or Jesus said if they would not, that he would come and make war against them. That's a pretty serious uh, statement, if you ask me. Uh, Letter number four is the church in... Thyatira, they were tolerating a false teacher, a self-appointed prophetess who was leading many in the church into sexual immorality and the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. And one of the things we discovered last week as we went through that particular letter was that there was no hope for the false teacher. It was done. She was done. Her judgment was coming. But for those who had followed her, there still was an opportunity. Still opportunity to wake up, to repent, to get right with the Lord. And we also discovered that there were those in the church who had not followed in her ways. And Jesus instructed them simply to hold fast uh, what they had until he comes. And I, I will interpret that until he comes, meaning until he comes in judgment against that particular church, not necessarily coming in the second coming. Today we're at letter number five, and we are looking at the church in Sardis. They are identified by Jesus as the lifeless church. Revelation chapter three, verses one through six, that's where we are today. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to that while I share a few thoughts of context about Sardis. Established around 1200 BC, Sardis became the capital city of the Lydian kingdom. Do we have that map up? Yeah, so that's something many of us don't know anything about, the Lydian kingdom, but it's located there in the Turkey area. And um, Sardis was located then, the next, I think, uh, slide will show us, about 30 miles south of Thyatira and 50 miles east of Ephesus. Now, history credits um, Sardis with being the originators of gold and silver coins. If we could have that slide, please. There is an example of a gold coin. And uh, no doubt uh, you have heard about one of their famous kings there in Sardis. Uh, He was famous for being magnificently wealthy. His name, does anybody know? No. But that's a good try, Doug. Very good try. No, it's Croesus. Have you heard the saying, rich as Croesus? Oh, well, then you guys aren't very well educated, are you? (laughs) 
I've only heard that once or twice in my whole life, to be honest. And so when I did come across that, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember hearing that. Rich as Croesus is something that has been said by many. Also, it is reported that Aesop, the, uh, the one connected with the famous fables, uh, was from Sardis. Now, Sardis was known as a center of industry and trade as well as military presence. Their most prominent industry, go ahead and give me the next slide, was the manufacture of woolen garments. And, and, and like other cities that we've considered, Sardis was a pagan uh, country, uh, city that hosted a number of idol temples. Their primary religion was the worship of Artemis or Diana, who was the goddess, goddess of nature, hunters, wildlife, fertility, childbirth. You'll remember from our very first letter that Ephesus was really majorly into the worship of, of Artemis or Diana, and they had a, a magnificent temple there that was literally one of the, the wonders of the ancient world. Well, in Sardis, it wasn't quite as magnificent, but they had a temple, and the ruins are right there on the page. So from that aerial site, you can kind of get a picture of how that temple was laid out. Now, on this next slide, you got it there. Thank you. I want you to take note of that red circle at the very bottom uh, corner. I don't know if it's right, left, or whatever, but at the very bottom of that. that, that inside that red circle are the ruins of a Christian church that had been built adjacent to the temple. And it did not exist during the time that this letter was sent to them. It came a little bit later. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, there was a Christian church right there in the shadow of the temple of Diana. And I'll come back to that later on in the message because I think it gives us some information that would be helpful to us. Well, despite the fact that Sardis had a glorious life in many aspects, at the time of this particular writing, uh, Sardis was only a shadow of what she had been. She was alive, Sardis, the city. She was alive. But much of the vibrant life of the city had dried up, as was also true of the Christian church that was within her. So let's read the letter. Let's see what it has to say, and then we'll break it down. Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, help us now in this moment to communicate well, to receive what you want us to receive, and then to take the steps that you want us to take. I lift this to you in Christ's name. 
Amen. So as we're thinking about the author, uh, Jesus here introduces himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I just want to make this known that the language of his proclamation here is that of possession. Uh, Jesus here is claiming possession of both of these. The seven stars are defined for us in chapter 1, verse 20, as the angels of the seven churches. When we covered that particular passage, I demonstrated how we come to understand uh, that the word angel there, which means messenger, is not referring to supernatural beings, but to natural beings, most likely being one of the elders of the seven churches. And Jesus is telling the church that he holds, he possesses, he otherwise directs men whom he has placed uh, in authority to shepherd the church and that they are his and they are accountable to him. As to the seven spirits of God, we first saw this in chapter 1, verse 4, where John identifies himself and the Trinity as being the source of the fullness of the revelation that we're going to be studying. Now, there is, of course, as we looked at it back then, only one Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 makes that abundantly clear. And the reference to seven spirits, we also discussed that, is best understood as the fullness of the Holy Spirit as recorded in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Uh, just a reminder of that passage, we find in Isaiah eleven two that the Spirit is being spoken of as being from the Lord, so we know that he is divine, he is fully God, and he is the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, and of fear of the Lord. And so we draw from that that this statement is about the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit of God. Now, Whereas the seven spirits, as is being referred to, or the Holy Spirit, is depicted in chapter 1, verse 4, as being before the throne of God. In chapter 3, verse 1, uh, Jesus claims personal possession of the Spirit. Personal possession. It is something that he also claimed when he was on earth and he was at a synagogue in Nazareth and he proclaimed that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, Luke chapter 4, verse 18. So that's just a little bit about the author and how he introduced himself to the church in Sardis. Continuing on, we discover that after introducing himself to the individual churches as we've been seeing, uh, he has typically offered some word of commendation. He has offered some word saying, well, these are some of the things that I have noted about you that I find very positive things that you need to continue doing. But in this case, with Sardis, there is no commendation, none whatsoever. And along with that, not only is there no commendation, there's no mention of any doctrinal problems existing among them. There is no mention of outside pagan persecution. Jesus says that the issue with the church there in Sardis is this, that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now, I want you to take a moment to just kind of let that soak in, and I want you to think, if you can, about what is actually being said there. 
You have a reputation. It's what people think of when they look at you or when they hear your name mentioned, your reputation. They have a reputation for being alive. That's how other people see them. That's how other churches see them. That's how their community sees them, as being alive. Meaning what? Well, in our day and time, it would mean like your offerings are great and your attendance is great and your good works in the community are great and your choir and your worship team are phenomenal. And we don't have a choir, but our worship team is phenomenal. Your programs that you have, are just top-notch. Can you see that picture in your mind? Can you, can you envision a church where things are like that? It just seems when you look at them that they are hitting everything on every cylinder. They are successful. They are strong. They seem to be effective. But here's a question. Is it possible for a church to be hitting all of the observable markers of success but actually be dead? Is that possible? Truth point number one. Attendance, programs, offerings, community good works, phenomenal music are not the basis for judging a church as alive and blessed of God. That is not the basis. That is not what we need to be looking at to determine, is this church right in the center of where God wants it to be? Now, those things that I just mentioned are blessings, and they very well may be part of a church that that is alive, but they're not the basis for determining that. No, the primary indicator of a spiritually alive church is how they live out and proclaim the great commandment and the great commission. In other words, is the church loving God with all of its heart, soul, and mind? Is the church loving its neighbor uh, as itself in a specific way? Is it actively connecting with men, women, boys, and girls to help them become disciples of Jesus Christ? Is that church identifying them through baptism? By the way, next Sunday, we are going to witness seven baptisms. It's going to be a day of celebration. We'll hear those testimonies and we'll see them make their public profession of faith in in that outward way. They're already saved, but they're going to be sharing their testimony of salvation and they're going to be identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ through baptism. That's one of the exciting things that will be happening next week. But, But is that church seeing that take place? Are they systematically teaching these new disciples the word of God so that they can join Jesus in his mission and do the same with others? That's what we need to be looking at. That's what we need to be considering. Because listen to me, church, a a, a dead church can attract big crowds. A dead church can have exciting programs. A dead church can raise big dollars. But the definition of being a spiritually alive church is one that is actively proclaiming and living out 
the great commandment and the great commission. Living out those realities is the very essence of being alive for Christ, whether or not you have the crowds or the programs or the money or the praise of others. So, the church in Sardis had been weighed in the balance and had been determined by the head of the church to be dead, even though they had all the trappings of being alive. So what does the Lord say to this church that he says is dead? What is the prescription that he gives for them? We find that in verse 2, in the first part of verse 3. The prescription that Jesus gives is fivefold, and I want to go through these individually. First is to wake up. Wake up. In other words, wake up to your true condition. Unfortunately, it's, it's a common issue. When things are going well for a church, it becomes all too easy to fall into a place where you begin to take God for granted. When the crowds are big, when the offerings are big, when the accolades are, grow, are glowing, who has time for prayer? I mean, that takes time. We, we, we need to be, as a staff, getting together. And, we, and as, as leadership in the church, we need to be collaborating. We, we, we need to be spending our time uh, discovering the best practices of our day for doing church who has time for study of the word I mean good grief we live in a time where I can buy sermons that are already pre-written that target the very niche we're looking for who has time for that who has time to wait on God for direction I mean when you're in a church that is going full bore everybody wants the leader to be a man who knows what he's doing and is charting the course in the right direction and leading everybody in an exciting life for Christ, so to speak. But I want to tell you that it is a trap. It can be a trap that is too easy to fall into that will lead a church into a false sense of accomplishment, a false sense of accomplishment that God cannot and will not affirm. So he says, wake up. Wake up to your true condition. Secondly, he says, strengthen what remains. And the clear statement is that much of the church had died. Not died as in, in a coffin and they had a celebration of life service for them, but died spiritually. The, the church was decaying. It was dying off spiritually. Only a small remnant of life remained. What a shock it must have been for these proud members of the Sardis church who thought they were doing very well and everyone around them was telling them they were doing very well only to hear the one that they serve say that the majority of your ministry is dead in the water. What a shock. Truth point number two. Denial is a powerful condition that keeps its victims chained in deception. A church cannot be revitalized unless it is willing to see itself as it really is. 
You know what keeps a church from seeing itself the way it really is? Or do you know what keeps a person from seeing themselves as they really are? Starts with a P. Say it. Pride. Pride. Proud. We're proud. We're proud. Proud of our building. Proud of our pastor. We're proud of all of the things that we are doing and the people who drive from all over the place to come and visit our church at special times of the year. But you've got to see yourself as you really are. The church in Sardis did not know that they had been dying. They didn't know it because their focus was on the successes that made them seem like they were alive. So part two, a complete shift in focus from human achievement to God's empowerment was needed to bring divine restoration for that church. Strengthen what remains. The third aspect of this prescription that the Lord Jesus gives is for them to remember. Remember what you received. Remember what you heard. It would seem as though they had forgotten those things. That they had walked away from the foundation of their existence. So what had they received? Well, they had received God's grace. How did they receive that? Through the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, obviously, they had gotten away from that. Because if they hadn't, they'd be alive and not dead. The Lord Jesus says to them, you need to remember some things. You need to come back to the basics. You need to get, get back to the fundamentals of what it means to follow me. And you need to return as you remember. The fourth aspect of the prescription, two words, keep it. <laughs> keep it. In other words, live out God's grace and the gospel as a daily reality of your relationship with Christ and your ongoing transformation through his spirit and word. You need to remember what you received and what you heard, and then you need to act on it. You need to keep it. You need to do it. You know, too many professing Christians see God's grace and the gospel that empowers it as stepping stones to heaven. But that's not what it is. They are spiritual realities that are meant to be lived out in our physical world each and every day. So keep it, walk in it, practice it. Now each of the four parts of the prescription that I've offered so far all come down to this last word, which is the fifth part of the prescription, and that is repent. Repent. You know that repentance is different than confession. We are told to confess our sins to the Lord, and when we do, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confession is important. Acknowledging our wrong is necessary. But listen to me, church. Acknowledging our wrong without turning from the wrong is nothing more than hollow gestures. 
Oh, Lord, I lied. Shouldn't have done that. I agree with you. Oh, Lord, I coveted. And I'm sorry, that's not supposed to be what I'm supposed to do. I mean, that's important. Confession of your sin is important. Agreement with God that you are in the wrong is, is important. But truth point number three, God is not looking for hollow gestures. He is looking for a heart, yes, that agrees with him that something is wrong and that then turns to him to walk in his righteousness away from the wrong. So confession, if it's going to be biblical, needs to be, yes, I agree, this is wrong, Lord. You are right, I am wrong, and therefore I am going to turn from my wrong and I'm going to begin to head in the direction of you. I'm going to embrace you. I'm going to walk away from that. And catch this that confession and repentance are ongoing postures of a heart that seeks God, that walks with Christ, and that surrenders to the Holy Spirit. Church, let me say this to you. If you and I are walking closely with the Lord, then we will evermore be in a posture of confession and repentance. Because none of us are ever going to, in this life, achieve perfection. So we're always going to be struggling with different things. And when those things come about and we become aware of them, we do need to confess them, yes. But we need to turn from them and toward Him. We discover that if, it, if the church in Sardis would follow Jesus' prescription, then His life and His favor would flow over them, re renewing them and restoring them to strength and effectiveness. That's always the way it is. When you turn to the Lord in humble repentance and faith, He will always forgive. He will always embrace. He will always draw you near. If... You confess and repent. But if not, well, if not, then judgment. Divine judgment is typically not immediate. Have you ever noticed that? How many of you have committed a sin and then got hit with lightning immediately following? Uh, probably none of us have gotten hit with lightning and probably never will. But you know what I mean by that. Right? There is this thing that we see that we sin and we feel bad, but nothing happens. And so we think, well, okay, this is good. So we do it again, and nothing happens. Okay. Before long, we're down a trail where we've done it so many times, we don't even think it's wrong anymore. Divine judgment is typically not immediate because God is gracious. He gives time for repentance. In the days of Noah, he gave 120 years for the world to repent. And they did not. And it's interesting, when the rain began to fall, I think it took them by surprise. They were shocked that this was happening. And the resulting flood destroyed them. 
Well, in like manner, a thief comes to do harm. And he never announces the day or the hour of his coming. And this is how Jesus says that his judgment will come to this lifeless church if they do not repent. If you do not repent, if you will not turn, if you will not take this prescription that I'm giving you, then you can be assured that I will come against you. You won't know when. It'll be just like the thief who never announces his his coming. But when I come, it will be for your harm. In other words, I will judge you. So, what happened? Did they repent? Did they change? Is there any evidence that they followed the prescription that Jesus gave to them? Well, verse 4. Look with me at verse 4. The Lord said to them, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, speaking of their spiritual life, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You know, here's the thing. God always has his remnant. Right? You look out at the world today and you see how terrible it is, but God still has his remnant. Some of them are right here in this room. God always has his remnant. He always has those who, despite the overwhelming spiritual death around them, still have life, still have light. And it's the same, it was the same for Sardis. There is evidence that those faithful few may have persevered. There is evidence that others may have come along and repented and grown in faithfulness, at least for a while. Let me share just a little bit of that evidence with you. In the late second century, about a hundred years following the time of the writing of this letter to the church in Sardis, there was a church leader that rose to a measure of prominence. Um, He wrote many books, many theological works. It is said that he wrote the first commentary on portions of the book of Revelation. His name is Melito. Melito. He was a Christian apologist. He also served as the bishop of Sardis. And when you think about him having that kind of ministry a hundred years after these things that Jesus said, it, 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 it's a sign that a hundred years later the church still had some vibrancy, that they were still moving in a decent way. Also, let's go to the next slide. You remember that little church building standing adjacent to the temple of Diana? That, we saw it from a, the up, up high view, right? Here we're seeing it from a level view. This building continues to stand adjacent to the ruins of the temple of diana it was built around 200 years after the letter that went to sardis and i would say to you that its ruins stand as a testimony to a group of believers who for a time proclaimed the gospel and who for a time made disciples of jesus christ in the shadow of a pagan temple so did they repent You know, I don't know for sure, 100%, but I would just simply say that there are some evidence out there that this letter may have had some impact, and they may have gotten more serious, and they may have moved on, and the Lord may have blessed them in certain ways for a period of time. 
But that is the Lord, is it not? If we move toward him, he embraces us. Judgment, though, is reserved for those who refuse. Well, we come to verse 5 and something more positive. Reward. Reward. Uh, The Lord Jesus says, to those who conquer. To those who conquer. Who are those who conquer? Those who conquer are those who persevere in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, make that abundantly clear. That conquering in this context is all about one's faith continuing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, of those, they will be clothed in white garments. Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, chapter 7, verse 9, and verse 13 and 14, and chapter 19, verse 8, and, chap- and, and, and also verse 14, all present white garments as a sign of righteousness. In this particular context, looking forward to that time of reward, white garments serve as a symbol that the days of being clothed in unredeemed flesh is over and that the fullness of redemption is obtained. That the former things of the old world are past and the new perfect things of eternity with Christ are yours. This is part of the reward that is awaiting the saints of Christ. There will come a day when we will shed these bodies and we will be clothed fully in the righteousness of Christ. It will be a day when the old world is gone and a new world is here. And that's what we live for. Jesus goes on to say about these who conquer, And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Wow, that's interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the book of life. It's mentioned seven times in the New Testament. First in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, and then six more times in Revelation. It's mentioned in our passage today, chapter 3, verse 5. It's also mentioned in chapter 13, verse 8. Chapter 17, verse 8, chapter 20, verses 12 and 15, and chapter 21, verse 27. And this book of life is said to have the names of everyone who is redeemed written in it. In fact, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, and also chapter 17, verse 8. Listen to this carefully. Speak of those whose names... Speak that those whose names are in the book of life were written there before the foundation of the world. So as we consider the statement, I will never blot his name out of the book of life, it begs the question, can someone's name be taken out of the book of life? What about your name? What about my name? Could it be removed? Well, I want to say to you with all assurance that the names that are recorded in the book of life are there and they will never be removed. Never. You say, Pastor, how do you come to that conclusion? (laughs) Simply because they were written there before the creation 
Think about that. They were written there before any human being drew a breath. They were written there before anyone ever did something right or something wrong. Now, I can't tell you that I understand all of that and that I grasp it all perfectly because I don't. But God's word is clear that the book of life contains, contains the names of those who are redeemed or will be redeemed. And that book was published before God even created. And if that is the case, then it would mean that God perfectly knew who would receive his grace. And he wrote their names down and they are there and they can never be removed in other words church i want to say this to you that the redeemed are held secure in the hand of god and that's exactly what jesus said in john chapter 10 that no one can remove us from the father's hand now if that is so if the redeemed are held secure in the hand of god if that is so then then why did jesus make a statement that that many people have taken as a veiled threat that some names could be removed. Well, I'm going to say he didn't. <laughs> he didn't make a veiled threat. If that's what you think you're reading when you see that, you're misunderstanding what you are reading. It's quite the opposite. Rather than a veiled threat, it's a statement of open assurance those who conquer, those whose faith in Jesus Christ endures, they can be assured that Jesus will never remove their name out of the book. It's an assurance. And not only that, he goes on to say, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So the statement is a statement of assurance. A statement that that the Lord will not do the negative, but he will do the positive. He will confess us to his Father and to his angels. Jesus made a similar statement recorded in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. He said, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Truth point number four, this conquering, this enduring in faith, as Jesus puts it, is not the responsibility or the work of the individual believer, but of the Holy Spirit. See, I think one of the things we could get scared about is thinking, okay, so I've got the grace of God, my name is in the book of life, I need to endure to the end, I need to have faith in Jesus till the end, so I need to find a way i got to find a way to make sure that I don't, it doesn't slip out of my hands. Like when I'm telling one of those lies and it goes away. i, I got to make sure that I've got it secured. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, that you don't need to grow in your faith. We have a part to play. But at the end of the day, the Scripture is very clear that it is the Holy Spirit who holds you, not you. And I want you to see this. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. I'm not going to read it right now. I'm going to let you do that. But when you read it, you're going to find this, that it emphatically states that the Holy Spirit is the believer's guarantee that they will persevere 
in their faith until they come into full possession of their salvation in the presence of Christ. I don't know about you, but if it relied upon me to persevere, if it relied upon me to conquer, to maintain my faith throughout my life, I think I would be hell-bound, friends. I don't think I have what it takes. But the Holy Spirit that's been deposited in me, according to Ephesians, is my guarantee. It is his work. It is his strength. It is his empowerment. It is his enablement that keeps me where I need to be. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. You say, Pastor Mike, okay, great. But, you know, you just said something that kind of threw me off. You said, the Holy Spirit is my guarantee until I receive the full possession of my salvation. What do, you, what, what do you mean by full possession? Am I, am, I, don't, am I not already fully saved if I believed? What, what do you mean by that? Well, I'll use myself as an example. I am fully saved. The Holy Spirit resides within me. And his salvation, the Lord's salvation is fully secure. But it shouldn't be a stretch for us to realize that I have not yet come to experience the fullness of my salvation yet. Have you? No, you haven't. You see, as long as we live in our body, which is not redeemed, then we are not experiencing the fullness of the salvation that Christ has given us. Not until we cross over into his presence, having shed this unredeemed body, will we experience the complete absence of the sin curse. Truth point number five summarizes it. When my body is resurrected, or caught up, assuming that I'll die someday, when my body is resurrected and transformed into the likeness of Christ's resurrection body, then my redeemed soul, in concert with my enlivened spirit, will enjoy the fullness of salvation. I have it. It's secure. But I'm not fully experiencing it yet. But I will. And if you know Christ, you will too. And what exactly is the fullness of our salvation? Well, eternal life, sinless perfection in our soul, in our spirit, and in our body. That is the promise of God. And it is assured to us by Jesus Christ. Verse 6 says, as all of these letters say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Christians... Look up here a minute. The Spirit of God says to you, He says to you, live. Live. Live for Christ. Don't just have a reputation of being alive, but truly be alive. Be alive by maintaining your remembrance of what you've received and what you've heard, and by then, Trusting in the empowerment of the Spirit of God to actually live it out. If the grace of God empowered by the gospel of Christ is close in your heart, if it is ever on your mind and you allow it to have its way in you, you can't help but live. And so the Spirit says, live. Live. 
If we're going to live in these bodies that we have right now, we're going to have to have a life of repentance. And so I want to encourage you, church, all of you Christians, that when you discover a sin in your life, that's the time to repent. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of an issue, that is the time to repent. We need to always be turning, always turning from sin, always turning from the flesh, always turning from the world toward Christ. And if we are doing that, if we are always turning away from sin and away from that which tempts us to sin to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will never have to worry about him saying, you're dead. But you will enjoy his life. And to my unbelieving friend, I say to you this, and I do, I do not mean any disrespect, and I am surely not trying to uh, offend you in any way, but the truth of the matter is that you are dead in sin. You are separated from God. You are currently under his condemnation. That is the reality of those who are outside of Christ. You don't have to be there, though. Jesus died to pay sin's debt. He rose from the dead to bring new eternal life. And the scripture is very clear that if you will turn from sin to embrace Jesus by faith, then you can receive forgiveness and you can receive eternal life. Perhaps you have questions about what that means. I'd be happy to sit down with you and talk with you. My contact information is there on the screen. If you reach out, I'll reach back. And I truly do believe that if your heart is ready and you are earnestly seeking the Lord, he will meet you exactly where you are and he will meet your need. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to be here today, to sing the songs that we have sung, to fellowship with the people that we've had the opportunity to engage, and to share your word, this letter to the church in Sardis. Father, I pray that we are not dead here. I don't think we are. But it's not my judgment that matters, now is it? But I don't think we are. I think that there's life here, and I think there are servants of yours, disciples of yours that are alive and seeking to grow and seeking to reach others. We're imperfect. We, Lord, we are an imperfect bunch. That is a fact. But I believe our desire as a whole is to live, to live for you, to live in your grace, to live in your mercy, to live to share that with others, to live to help others to grow in that as well. May we never get off track. May we stay close to you. May we be a church that is constantly ready to repent when we're wrong and ready to embrace your righteousness, that we may walk in your life and in your light. And Father, I pray for those who may be in this room or who may be in the overflow room or may be online who do not yet know Christ, that your Holy Spirit would do for them what they cannot do for themselves, and that is to open their eyes, to show them who Jesus is, and to bring them to that place of humility, of repentance and faith and salvation. Lord, do what you need to do in our hearts and lives. May we respond to you appropriately. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. 
We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.